when it comes to women of color, I think oftentimes we're told what we're not instead of what we are. So being able to embrace ourselves and embrace our beauty and be bold and honest about it is activism. Leaders who care about those they lead must also care about the systems within which we all exist. Now this can get uncomfortable. Once we see the systems, we can start to see the way others pain is often our profit. And yet, when you start to notice the systems that protect some at the expense of others, it's hard to unsee. This awareness brings up discomfort around doing business as usual and moves many to say enough, no more, and change is needed now. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. We might want change now, but but change is almost always met with resistance. And resistance to change is at its core protective. Yet this well-intentioned approach can end up hurting instead of helping especially when the desire to protect is at the expense of the well-being of others. And when looking at the industries that have a focus around our image, it gets even more messy. (laughs) Now, I'm late to the fashion, makeup, skincare party, and I have loved playing around with style and products that make me feel good. It has been fun to support some incredible companies caring more about just the bottom line and supporting causes that serve the greater good. Still, the messaging around beauty and health can be disorienting and sometimes downright demoralizing to the point where we confuse the truth on our worth and value. This is where caring turns leaders to embrace an activist mindset in order to cultivate spaces that are brave and safe for all. This is work. In fact, this is the work. So what does cultivating spaces that are brave and safe actually look like? How do we dismantle our own internalized bias or oppression to create spaces where people truly feel welcome and included in the work at hand? And how does this all relate to the work of building a business or managing a team or leading a movement? That's what we're going to be exploring in today's episode. The Unburdened Leader is kicking off a series showcasing the power of leaders who infuse their business and bottom line with change and disruption. They use their life's work and platforms to communicate change and activate those who follow them those who learn from them to care and do the work to change instead of tapping out. This particular focus of activism, which has often been branded as a dirty word, is not just about a product or a marketing tactic. It is about deep change coming within leaders first, where more bold and honest actions push back on the oppressive and insidious attacks on the worth and value of all. When you do not feel comfortable in your skin, it is harder to tolerate the vulnerability of standing up to leadership and systems that hold a lot of power. The bulk of marketing for the beauty and wellness industry knows how to focus on the pains of feelings of not enough, offering solutions to that pain that leave us questioning ourselves and looking elsewhere for relief to pain that has been cultivated by really effective marketing. When you're doubting your enoughness, you end up leading from a place of scarcity and fear. And when we lead from scarcity and fear, it distracts us from focusing on much needed changes of the systems and how we lead that are deeply entrenched. So the battle for your confidence is something fierce. When you doubt, when you shrink, when you hide, you're not leading yourself or others well and the world is missing out on your best work. A guest today has been called a beauty activist and models doing the inner work to maintain the capacity to keep showing up and disrupting homeostasis for the greater good. Nakia Phoenix is a content creator, storyteller, and occasional commercial actress with a passion for social change and conscious living. 
She is the founder of Black Girl Beautiful, a loving and safe space that celebrates Black women. After diving deeper into wellness and self-care, Nakia recently became a Reiki master and a meditation practitioner. When she's not socially distancing at home, she enjoys traveling to serene locations, documenting her journeys, and occasionally road tripping with her cat. Listen to how Nakia sees the intersection of beauty and leadership, along with how she defines leadership. Pay attention to Nakia's experience growing up and how she cared for the young parts of her story through how she was leading her life as an adult. And listen for her experience and how she navigated a really difficult work betrayal. Don't tap out early and miss the doozy of a story she shared at the end from her childhood that is still echoing in my heart today. Now, please welcome the amazing Nakia Phoenix to the Unburdened Leader podcast. You're listening to the Unburdened Leader, and I am so thrilled to welcome Nakia Phoenix to the Unburdened Leader podcast today. Welcome, Nakia. Hi, thank you for having me. I am so looking forward to this conversation. I have admired you from afar. We've had brief interactions here or there, and I'm really excited to get to know you better and have many other people learn from you. And so I want to jump in. Um, when I was prepping for this interview, I kept seeing you describe and others describe you as a beauty activist, which I love. So I'm curious for you to unpack what does being a beauty activist mean to you? And, and more specifically, what does that look like in action for you? You know, it's this is very interesting because I, I often do think of myself as an activist, However, a beauty activist, I'm like, oh, wait, this is, oh, I guess this is what I do. I encourage people to live in their, in their true selves and embrace uh, the beauty inside and out. And I know that oftentimes we're, I think especially as women, we're taught to accept compliments, but just kind of shrug it off like, oh, yeah, it's nothing. Oh, well, thanks. But, you know, always making excuses. But I definitely encourage people to accept who they are, accept their beauty and allow it to shine. And especially when it comes to women of color, I think oftentimes we're told what we're not instead of what we are. So being able to embrace ourselves and embrace our beauty and be bold and honest about it is activism. How are you bold and honest in your beauty activism? What does that look like for you? day to day even day to day that looks like it's it's a process <laughs> <laughs> it's a process like i woke up this morning i'm like okay i know that we're doing this we're doing this interview and i know that even though it's not going to be shown parts of it are on camera how do i feel today i feel like i don't ha i can just be stripped down and be me and i don't have to put on all this extra stuff even though makeup is pretty and it's fun dressing up I can just be comfortable. And as long as I accept myself, then others will accept me also. That's the work, Nakia. Dang, right there. And it's the daily practice getting to that space, huh? Mm -hmm. So how do, you how do you define beauty? Beauty for me is a state of being. It is a state of loving yourself, actively loving yourself and showing love to other people. Uh, it's being compassionate. It's having grace for oneself. I often feel like we're too hard on each other and too hard on ourselves. And that can come across as not very attractive, I guess. Beauty is, beauty is laughter. Beauty is joy. Beauty is love. And our listeners can't see the big smile on your face as you say that. And so you describe joy, laughter, love. These aren't things that we wear. This isn't a lip liner or a hairstyle or a pair of shoes, which I love my shoes. <laughs> I mean, I just will say I miss, I miss wearing my shoes. They're all just sitting all dusty these days. My slippers my are, <laughs> oh dear Lord. So Beauty is a state of being and and you, you even said, I'm just sitting here thinking about the most beautiful people I know 
also make me feel beautiful. Like when they're owning their beauty, that makes me feel beautiful too. Like it's like this weird, not weird, it's just this powerful contagion. Yes. Yes. Because at first you think, okay, I'm standing in their light. And then you realize that you're standing in each other's light and you just continue to radiate. Yeah. And, and it's, it's so not tangible, right? Because when we don't feel beautiful, I'm thinking of the things I do when I don't feel beautiful. I can do the practices like you're so if people haven't followed Nakia, you have this morning ritual where you just say wake up. And I remember at first I was like, who wakes up so happy? And I'm like, well, why don't you try it, Rebecca? Why don't you try just saying hello? Let's do this. And so, you know, moving into that, you know, and so, but these, these beauty is almost this practice I'm learning from you too. And it's a state of being yet. Sometimes when I don't feel beautiful, it's easy to fall into, all right, I want to wear something that makes me feel good, or I want to, you know, dress up or get comfy, or sometimes I can have the opposite effect. I collude with my icky feelings and not care and say F it and Mm -hmm. detach from my being almost and swim in the ickiness. Mm -hmm. How do you navigate just the waves of, I mean, if beauty really is this, which I, I agree with you is this state of being, and we're living in a world that I used to work in advertising and politics where I know billions of dollars are spent to get us to believe and to buy, therefore buy and spend money on things. How do you, how do we practice beauty. (laughs) It's practicing Mm self-love. It's, it's being able to look at yourself in the mirror, no matter how you look or how you feel that day and say, Hey, you, I love you. And we're going to get through this. It's about finding those random moments or being open to those random moments. Um, Serendipity, I guess. Because oftentimes I think that when we're not feeling good about ourselves, when we're not feeling beautiful, we don't recognize the beauty that's all around us. So we don't. So I, I, no matter what, I try to keep my eyes and my heart open so that I can actually witness those moments of beauty. Like yesterday, I was not having uh, the best day. I felt like my, I was overthinking, which is something that I often do. And- (laughs) I was sitting by my window in my dining room and my cat happened to be outside and I just saw him walking through. It's it's obviously autumn here and so the leaves have fallen. I saw him walking through the backyard like playing in the leaves and like chasing squirrels and then I saw all these birds come out and that beautiful bright red cardinal and I was like, wow, that's beautiful. And I'm glad that I... I allowed myself to be open to witnessing the beauty in nature. And how did that impact how you were feeling? I lightened up. I relaxed. Mm. My shoulders relaxed. And I was like, oh, turning brain off, (laughs) opening heart (laughs) up. And I just, I got out of my head. Our thinking parts work over time, don't they, Nakia? They work so hard for us. Sometimes they need... I I love this almost intervention, this practice, if I'm not feeling connected to my own beauty, to notice beauty. I think that's a a really powerful leadership practice, even too, as we're leading ourselves. And I did did want to ask you, how do you see the intersection of beauty and leadership? And what does that look like to you? Hmm, That's a really great question. What does that look like to me? I have to close my eyes to kind of visualize. That looks like standing in your light, standing in your being, and just allowing that to radiate. And when that truly radiates, when your energy radiates, when your beauty radiates, it influences other people, it positively influences other people. And without you even saying anything, and without you even consciously doing anything, you're leading by example. It's like, I'm really taking away from this, the nonverbal practices here and the impact we have on ourselves and others by connecting to beauty. And if we're having a hard time connecting to our own, connecting to the beauty around us, because I I mean, I don't think it's realistic for us to walk around always feeling 
you know, good about ourselves. And I mean, I just, I mean, as a trauma informed therapist and leadership coach, I'm like, come on, let's not put that pressure on. But I love the practice of I'm not feeling this, but I'm going to witness the beauty around. And even if I'm not feeling it, and if I do that practice, the impact that my presence then has on others for the better, that's, that's powerful. That is really powerful. We have, our heart energy is so big. It is so powerful. It radiates from within us and radiates out. And we can feel that no matter, and others, other people can feel that no matter if they're actually physically in a room with us or just thinking about us from a distance. And this is realistically how um, Reiki works. You're tapping into the universal energy and that allowing that universal energy to help lift you up and then you're feeding back into it. It's connection. Mm-hmm. It's connection. Yeah. And and when we're feeling dark or disconnected, connecting to beauty, if we can't within externally connecting to it, and then that cyclical, that, that radiation, I like the radiating, you know, radiation, radiating. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, just, yeah. I think of, I, I genuinely picture someone just standing and breathing and just, feeling grounded and allowing um, that energy to come up through their their feet, through their knees, all the way up through their body and like push out like their aura. That's that's the energy that, that I see and that I feel when I think about beauty. Yeah. I'm just, and I'm thinking, my gosh, we just don't take the time to do that. It's hard. You know, I mean, here in my house, I've got two kids schooling right now from home and my husband's teaching his AP US history class, you know, we're talking, but those moments and, and that this connection to, and again, energy, I think we're all energy. And I think sometimes we dismiss that as too woo, but that's contagious. And so I really just think stopping and noticing and connecting them, really taking that away. So thank you for that message. I really, I think it's easier said than done, but you practice it so well. It's, it is a practice, isn't it? It is a practice because like I said earlier, I'm an overthinker. I'd like so many people are overthinkers. We've been taught to be in our heads instead of being in our bodies and feeling our, our energy and feeling other people's energies. So I have had to stop myself in my tracks when I start overthinking and running too fast. And because, you know, when you're running too fast, you will trip over your own feet. (laughs) Eventually. (laughs) Eventually. And I've done that and fallen flat on my face and just still, but still try to get up and run again. And it's like, okay, wait, need to assess the situation. Calm down. It's so mean, Akia. Like I trip and fall, and I like the metaphor and literally, but I want to keep doing it until like how many times? I'm like, wait, I need to engage with this differently, you know. And I'm thinking about I was just a part of a leadership team uh, for an IFS level two trauma and neuroscience training, and uh, the lead trainer Frank Anderson was reminding us that our kind of thinking parts and our inner critic parts are often connected to emotional neglect in our story and that these parts of us come up and think and want to keep us from getting hurt again, just thinking about our thinking parts working hard. And so it it brings me to an experience that's come up in your talking and when you talk and speak and write about an early life experience you had, you shared a lot about being teased and bullied because of your freckles. And I'm a little partial to freckles, but you've had these experiences. How have these experiences impacted your own sense of beauty and your worthiness of love. I remember wanting to hide and wanting to blend in and in high school discovering makeup and trying to cover up my freckles with foundation, which meant that I had to put on layer after layer after layer. And of course it didn't work, but it was hard. It was hard being everyone's realistically though, everyone's different. My, but my differences were really visible. <laughs> I couldn't hide and I wanted to hide so much. And 
My mother has freckles, but even she wore that thick pancake makeup. And um, when when she saw that I was going through the things that she had gone through, it I was I'm I'm literally her reflection. <laughs> so mm. it it was a, a healing moment for both of us. And I while I was going through this journey of um, self-discovery and self-love, my mom had to insert herself back into her own journey for the sake of trying to help me through it. And that was, yeah, I just remember being curled up in my mom's lap as a teenager, literally like long lanky legs curled up in my mom's lap crying and um, her comforting me. And I think, you know, when your mother says things like, you're, you're beautiful and I love you and you matter. Of course you're like, yeah, yeah, you're, but you're my mom. You're (laughs) supposed to say those things, but I did genuinely need to hear those affirmations. And eventually Mm -hmm. those affirmations started to sink in. And I realized that those things are actually true. And those are things that I carry with me to this day, because I know that I need to reaffirm myself every day. I know that I need to show myself love uh, every day because I can't count on other people to give that to me. And I can't give that to others if I don't have it for myself. So just being teased, I don't know if it, it necessarily made my skin thicker, but it opened my eyes to all the different beauty that is out there that is waiting to be embraced. Even when I see like little kids, I I know that they're often looking at me like, what is, I've literally had this happen in airports. This little kid will stare at me and like tug on his mom and say, mom, what's wrong with her face? Mm. And I know that they're they're a kid and they don't know. And the mom immediately apologizes. And I just kind of, I laughed off and I'm like, hey, ask me questions. Let's talk. Like, I'm okay with with me being your your first introduction to different kinds of beauty. I'm okay with that at this point in time because I've learned to accept my own beauty. And I also love to see the little kids who may not feel you can tell when someone does, doesn't necessarily feel comfortable in their own skin and for me to be able to look at them and say hey i see you i think that they that they understand when i say that that we've been through the same things or similar things and i just want you to know it's going to be okay Isn't it interesting how we connect with those who've been through similar pains? There's like this weird, it's just like this unspoken knowing, you know, as, as a redhead, I mean, and in Minnesota was where I grew up. It's definitely like the land of the blonde hair, tall, thin, blonde hair, blue eyed. I, I think of standing out in the names and then my my maiden name is Bass. So with a redhead, being a redhead and last name Bass, there were a lot of, <laughs> a lot of teasing, but there's this knowing and I feel a solidarity even whenever I see a redhead. I'm like, yes, yes. you me. Yes. Got you. <laughs> 2% of the world population. But the, the teasing almost, it, it is interesting. When you talk about, this this experience of now having a sensitivity to that and wanting to be the person like you're okay with what the world would call different and wanting to people to ask questions. Tell me about that shift. I mean, when when did when did you start to really shift from being othered to I, let's have a conversation? Do you remember when that shift happened for you? The shift, the shift probably came in my mid twenties when I started modeling, because when I was younger and wanted to model, it was the nineties. And, and that's when, you know, we had supermodels, but we also had, we celebrated diversity and uniqueness in fashion and in beauty. 
And then the early 2000s happened and it was like, ah, ditch that. Let's just go back to cookie cutter. You know, everyone looks the same. So when I did start modeling in my mid 20s, I realized that I was getting jobs because I was different. And I really liked that. And I realized that I was also getting jobs because I wasn't as hung up on trying to change myself to fit into a a particular box or a particular mold because I know I knew by then I what was I going to be able to change? I can't change anything. And so I just I, I started embracing it and wanting to have these conversations and especially with modeling, I felt like and I I still feel like this today, models are human beings. They are artists. We can't treat them like they're mannequins. And I remember being people trying to treat me like I was a mannequin. And I would say, hello, real person here. If you have something to Mm. say, let's talk about it. And no one ever, not no one ever, but it, it rarely happened that people would, models would speak up for themselves. I'm like, I'm going to speak up for myself. I need to. Okay, so lots of questions on mm-hmm. this. So for, first, given the part of your earlier childhood teasing, bullying experiences, I mean, there was a part of me that was kind of like when I, you know, you you now have booked with some of the world's biggest brands as a model. You know, what was that like for you connecting that those younger parts of you when that when you started getting like these like really big gigs from international brands? I mean, I know a part of me was like, you take that, you take that bully, <laughs> see. See, you know, here's my ad, you know, but that's, that was me kind of cheering on like, yeah, bully. But I, I, for you, what was that like for you? You kind of touched on that. It started to help you deepen your sense of self-love and self-acceptance. What else, what else was that like for you when you started booking these really big name brands for modeling gigs? Oh my gosh. It was, it was really exciting. It's like, Hey ma, look. And I was able to share some of those "Hey Ma, look" moments actually with my mom because uh, she did a shoot <laughs> with me, which was awesome. And um, it was validation. It was validation, and also really cool because there was one shoot in particular that there were so many people that auditioned for this particular campaign, and I mean, like. Uh, so many people, so many, so many models and actors that I even looked up to. I'm like, how are we auditioning for the same thing? And when I finally booked it and we're on the shoot and we're getting ready to shoot, this other woman walks out from behind one of the doors and she's part of the corporate team. And I looked at her and I said, you're why I booked it. She had freckles. Huh. I was like, oh, wow. And she said, yeah, I saw myself in you and I knew that you could do this. And I was just like, talk about paying it forward. Wow. <laughs> wow. That was, that was a moment of like triumph for all freckled people, freckled little girls everywhere. It was, it was beautiful. And then also because it was such a moving campaign, being able to witness other people's reactions to the campaign and for them to see themselves in it and to be moved by the imagery, I was like, oh, we're all winning. This is why, this is why I do this. Oh, it was the, the little me who needed comforting and, and love and was feeling so uncertain about herself. Ah, uh, she she celebrated in those moments. You know what's so powerful about that to me is instead of you even being so often we objectify other or different as like a check in the box, but that to have this part of your story because another woman saw herself in you. Like it was you were really seen and known and elevated. I, I think, wow, when we do that. Dang. And then the healing effect on your whole story. And oh my gosh, that, there, were there tears shed with the two of you? I just have this image I of the mean, two of you. going. I'm shedding <laughs> tears right now. I had to, for the particular campaign, I had to go through a number of different emotions, which was like, 
at the time I'm like, I'm not an actress. How am I supposed to pull this off? But I had to go from being like happy and excited to crying and like, then going back to happiness again. And I, it was at first I was like, oh, this is going to be such a challenge. But when I was able to think about just even the audition process, I was like, oh, I can do this. And I mean, naturally we do kind of ebb and flow between different emotions. We don't always like stay in the sadness or always stay in the happiness. We, you know, we flow through it. So it was, a. it was a lot easier for me to convey the emotions that I needed to for that shoot when I just allowed myself to feel and to be. Wow. And I think sometimes when we've experienced, you know, traumas or the, like the teasing and bullying, we want vindication, but this word of validation and being witnessed and seen is really more healing than just going, take that. Then we're still hooked in to those who hurt us. But the witnessed and being seen and elevated, that's just, I just have this image of what you just painted in the, on the shoot there. Thank you for sharing that. I forgot about that moment, honestly, until now. And it's one of, it's one of my favorites. Well, thank you for sharing it. Thank you for sharing that. Um, you touched on a little bit just a little bit ago, and you've also spoken and written extensively about the modeling industry, especially the challenges as a woman and a woman of color. And it inspired your first blog, Model Liberation. Mm-hmm. I, I'm excited to hear from you. What are some leadership lessons you've learned from the modeling industry that you continue to lean on today? Hmm. In those moments, being on sets that may not have felt the most comfortable, and I, especially when I was working with younger models, it was so obvious to me that they were not okay, that they were not comfortable, that they needed to say something, that they needed someone to advocate for them, and they didn't know how to speak up for themselves. And I was like, here I am. What can I, what can I do to make this easier for you? Because making it easier for you is genuinely going to make it easier for everyone. Because you can, if you're really tapped in, you can tell when something's not okay. You can tell when someone's not okay. And that's going to affect the quality of the work. It's going to affect the artistry. We've all had those moments when we've gone into a big project and, you know, stuff has hit the fan and everyone's been angry or walked in with their, you know, with their egos present instead of their hearts. And then you look at the, you know, the final product and you're like, man, this is crap. (laughs) We weren't, we really weren't like in it at the moment. We weren't respecting each other and feeling it. And that shows. So I've always been, how can we make it easier for everyone? How can we make this a good environment for everyone where everyone feels um, free to express their creativity, to express their artistry, and to know that it's going to be appreciated? So the leadership things I've learned is be aware, feel, listen, speak up. Something's not okay. You have to speak up. And if something's great, speak up because we all always, we need those, those affirmations. We need to know that we're doing a good job because if we're not doing a good job, like give us the, give us the constructive criticism from a loving place so that we can shift and make sure that, um, cause at the end of the day, we want to make sure that we're doing right by the client. We want to make sure that we're doing right by the director or photographer, doing right by ourselves. So being able to speak up and to affirm and give feedback is very, very important to make sure that the end product is going to be something that, because we're in advertising, it's going to be something that genuinely moves people. It's such a powerful lesson though, because when we don't speak up, when something's not working, we're out of alignment with ourselves and that shows in the quality of the work. That's what I'm hearing from you. And I'm also knowing that speaking up can rock the boat. It can create backlash. And if folks have done that in the past and gotten in trouble for that, right? The default is to suck it up, go with the flow, go along to get along. But what is sacrifice is 
internally your sense of self-love and the quality of the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. That takes a lot of courage. And I love how you also want to you challenge us to speak up when it's going well or something's great and to celebrate that too, to affirm that we're on the right track. Using our voice, using our voice is not just a hashtag use your voice. It is a courageous leadership practice, isn't it? it oh my goodness, it really is. Because I think that we often, especially as women, we're taught to just kind of be in the background, not to really say anything. It's like, but we're here for a reason. So let's speak up. We're all here for reasons. Let's speak up. Let's let's use our voices. Let's exercise those those vocal cords and and make this genuinely better. Because I think when we just when we're quiet and we see it's it's like seeing a train wreck happen right in front of your eyes and you're just kind of quiet and. You're, you're, I, cause I've definitely, I've been a witness to, to some of these moments and you're like, should I, should I say something? Should I not say, oh, say something? I think it's better to say something than not. Even, even if it means backlash, even if it might mean losing a gig, even if it might mean having a bad reputation as a troublemaker, you're saying still, I see you nodding. You're like, yep, still speak up. Yeah. You have to, you have to speak up. You have to speak up. I think it's also at the end of the day, you want to leave on a, on a lighter note and leave a situation knowing that you did everything that you could to create, to make a better environment, you know, whatever your mission is. And you'd rather walk away knowing that you did all of that than to walk away with some regrets. And, oh, if I'd only said, oh, I'd say what you need to say, get it out. I'm just thinking courage is beautiful, right? That's just what I'm taking away from this. It doesn't feel beautiful in the moment. (laughs) I know for me, um, but I also totally can connect with those times where I didn't speak up and I'm sitting with the should have, could have, the regrets, the feeling, the conviction of being out of alignment with what matters most to me mm-hmm. and I'm more people speaking up. And and what I want to just maybe couch this in light of what's going on, particularly in our country right now, this is speaking up with love and respect. This isn't just a megaphone blaring, I've got something to say. Can you can you talk about the nuance of speaking up that you're talking about? Because it isn't just, I'm using my voice and blah. You know, I think sometimes there's a sense of where does the speaking up come from? Where's the, where is it coming from in you? If it's coming from me, from it's coming from my values, if it's coming from conviction, that it's almost, it's a mandate for me versus a reactive, reflexive speaking up where I'm powering over or blaming or shaming speaking up. Can you talk a little bit about how you differentiate speaking up? I love that you use the word mandate because that has been coming up a lot for me recently. Hmm. Mandate, purpose, calling, something that you know absolutely that you must do. And it's coming from a higher calling. I think a lot of the speaking up is speaking from a place of honesty, a place of love, a place of empathy. And I often don't think that all of the screaming that has been happening as of late, it's not coming from a place of love at all. It's coming from a place of fear. I think a lot of us are aware of that, right? And yes, there's a difference between speaking from an honest place and a truthful place and just yelling and screaming obscenities. And I just, I just need to get this out because realistically, I think that when you're just, when you're screaming, you're not even truly listening to yourself. (laughs) Totally. Oh my gosh. I'm just thinking of some of my mama get in mama nader moments. It's <laughs> like, ah, it just has to get out. But that's not, it's a different kind of communication. That's not speaking up. It's just release. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's just release. And then, then, you know, almost immediately you feel regret or shame. Afterwards. <laughs> 
gosh. Yeah, I, I, I love this boundary, this lane of am I, if I'm using my voice and speaking up, am I connected to empathy with the situation with what I'm speaking for, against, about, <clears throat> and where am I in relation to loving myself, my story, and humanizing even the person who I'm speaking up for or situation. And that, that means slowing down. And that's kind of almost what you talked about at the beginning of our time together, the sense of connecting to our beauty even is a practice of slowing down, but there's a lot of pain. And when we're overwhelmed and led by fear, our voice is being used, but not for love. And there's not empathy. There's not compassion there. It's just offloading. i can think of moments in my past when I've just been so angry. And although my anger is coming from a real place, I'm just so angry. And no matter what, it's just coming out as anger. My anger shows up before I do. My anger shows up before my humanity and it's just coming up as anger. So no matter how much I yell and scream, whoever I'm actually trying to communicate to isn't going to understand because all they hear and see is anger. Hmm. And there's a part of me that wants to say, yeah, but sometimes it just has to get out. I mean, yeah, yes, that that is very real. Sometimes it does. (laughs) It does have to get out. Otherwise it's going to fester like a sore. It has to get out, but there are other, other ways to now I know there are other ways to release that anger. Yes. True (laughs) story. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think sometimes, especially with women, we, I think pathologize and pejorate, make anger pejorative because I think we seem anger is secondary, but there's this uh, researcher, Panksepp, who talks about these primal emotions and he talks about rage, anger being one of these primal, almost mama bear, I think. So there is, I think there's a lot to be angry about in our stories, in our world, but there are practices on how to release that in ways that honor ourselves and our stories and don't dehumanize others in the process. But that's, that means we have to do work. That means we have to do work, mm-hmm. <laughs> do the inner work. <laughs> that's not efficient all the time, Nakia. Oh. oh my gosh. I've got more work to do. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> like once you think you've done, you've done it all. No, there's still more to do. There's still more to do. <laughs> I know. And I say, I say to everyone, you know, you're not done till you breathe, breathe your last breath. But I don't know if I like that when I look at it, I'm like, Duh, I just want to be done. So, <laughs> okay. On, on this note. So for you, creativity and creating is infused in everything you do, whether it's your speaking, your writing, your modeling, podcasting, you found communities, you just do so much. In prepping for our time, I listened to a couple episodes of your podcast. Oh, wow. And <laughs> And you shared on a recent episode about a work betrayal. And I found this was really fascinating and how it shut down your creativity. Oh, completely. What did you learn after exploring the roots of this creative shutdown? Because I think, I just think it's so when we see our creativity shut down, it's, I think it's a data point of deeper work. And I just love that. So what did you learn after you, yeah, that experience? (laughs) So some other things. So the, the, the betrayal affected my creativity. And I think I was in, I was definitely in denial about it or trying to, like we were talking about previously, running, 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 you trip over your own feet and you're like, no, I still have to run. I still have to run. I was still trying to run instead of just sitting there and reflecting. So when I was still trying to run, I kept getting hit with other obstacles that were a result of me not genuinely sitting in my in my crap and reflecting and working through it but it realistically brought up some unhealed childhood trauma that I was I didn't even I was like no that can't be it oh no no that's exactly what that is <laughs> that's exactly what that is and we have to deal with it. We we can't keep running from it. We can't hide from it. We actually have to address this and start to heal that. And I realized that my inner child needed to needed to feel safe again. 
my inner child needed to know that there was also an adult on the other end that was like, you know, hey, we're tethered to each other, but I'm the security while you can go out and play. I I needed to know that I can trust myself. And I literally was having a conversation with someone last week about this exact topic of the you know previous betrayals and in the conversation because we were talking about I said well how do you find your team and so she gave this friend gave me some pointers and just other things that you can do to also make sure that that you have everything lined up, that you have all of your processes documented and that you have all your onboarding documents and that you've answered all the questions before someone else is able to ask you the questions. And I thought about it and I said, wow, I did that. And because I had, I was working with people who didn't respect me and didn't trust me, it made me not trust myself. When, oh, totally. Yes. When I'd actually, I'd actually set myself up pretty, pretty well to begin with. But the whole, the relationship, the toxic, the toxic relationship gaslit me into believing that oh. I had done something wrong. And I was, I'm, I know what gaslighting looks when it comes to romantic relationships because I've been there, done that. It was a horrible abusive relationship. But when it came to business and creative relationships, I was like, oh my gosh, this exists here too. True story. True story. So I, you know, I had to I had to say to myself, listen. We knew that something was wrong, and now we we know that we're okay. We're going to get some. This may not be the last time that something like this happens, but I'm going to be quicker next time because I'm I'm learning the lesson, and I am healing that that inner child that had been hurt for such a long time. I'm healing that part of myself. And I may not be perfect, but it's a process and we're going to be okay. What would you say is the lesson that you're in the process of healing or continuing to heal from that experience? What's the lesson? The lesson is to trust myself. Oh, yes. (laughs) To trust myself. Did you have like little inner inklings that something was off early on, but because it was in a work dynamic, you kind of dismissed it? Oh my goodness. Yeah. A little bit later. Than- okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, I had to bring on um, in that particular creative business instance, I brought on a, a project manager to help out because I was like, I know that I can't, I obviously can't do this alone and I need someone that I can trust. And even that project manager was like, it's not you. It's not you. And I'm like, are you sure? Like, it's not, (laughs) it's not you. And if they're, if they're the project manager and they're managing everything and they're still getting pushback, they're like, and it's not me either. (laughs) It's the, (laughs) Validation, more validation. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I know for me, my work betrayals have actually led to some of my biggest healing, those trailheads of like, how did this show up here? Where am I? Where are the spots in my life that I'm still not that I'm still missing? And it's led to some of my biggest personal healing, but also biggest professional growth, because I was like, okay, I don't want to do this again. So what are the on the one of the systems and practices, but at the end, it's, I remember talking, I brought in a mentor to help me with something. And he said, did you feel early on that this wasn't a good decision? And I said, yeah. And I overrode it. I said, oh, no, no, no. You know? And so now whenever I have a little bit of that inkling, I just slow down. I just slow down and slow the process down, even though I don't attribute, you know, the right language. But if there's just something in me that just is like, eh, 
And is it, I'm like, is it me? Is it truth? I don't know. And sometimes I overthink, I just now listen to it if there's a little bit of an eh. But those are some of the biggest trailheads to my own personal healing. Yeah. And so I thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. Thanks for giving me the space to share because I think that a lot of people experience this, whether they you know want to vocalize it or not. And it is therapeutic to, to hear from other people, hey, yeah, I've, I've been there. And to also see, and you can make it out <laughs> with your sanity. Uh. You know, we need to, we, it's, I feel so much better when I hear from people like the real nitty gritty stories that you've been through some stuff. I want to, I want to hear that. And I, I want to see that like, oh yes. And, and here you are able to talk about it without completely breaking it down because you've healed from it or you're in the process of healing from it. That is, you know. That is so powerful to me. I I appreciate that so much more than the smoke and mirrors and you know just the cosmetic. Everything's great. I I need to see. I need to see that you've been through something. That there's been a process. That it's just it's just so inspiring to be able to see other people overcome obstacles and to know that you can overcome those obstacles as well. Absolutely. And we don't talk about that enough. We talk about just the end result, but anyone who's daring to put anything out there to, to show up and do something, we're open to criticism, to attacks, to being misunderstood. That to, and so it's just, and especially in this hypercritical world that we're in and yeah, gaslighting shows up everywhere, everywhere. And if, I mean, I grew up with gaslight parenting, so that's still a tricky one for me. It's still a tricky one. I can sneak up into because I have a high tolerance <laughs> for it. So it's just, you get yeah, yeah, the same with same. you. Yeah. And so I, I was so struck though, by this creative shutdown is because creativity, there's like two big influences in my life. Brené Brown's research, she, Brené talks and writes about if we don't express our creativity, it becomes malignant. And then in IFS, internal family systems, create creativity is one of the qualities of self, of the place of healing. And that's where, we, and if that gets shut down, you know, that's detrimental to my own well-being, let alone miss me being, quote, productive and work. So it's such a big data point for me now. If I'm like, wow, I can't, I can't get, I can't do my creating. I'm shut down. What's going on? It's a trailhead for me now because I know if I don't get that creativity back flowing, it's going to turn on me. Mm -hmm. So I really resonated with what you shared. When you lose your creativity, you're losing your inner child. Wow. That playfulness. You're losing that part that of yourself that, that wants to color, that wants to dance, that wants to be free. And that part of yourself that also recognizes um, the beauty in everything. Oof. Yeah. It shuts down all a lot of those parts in me for sure. So, Okay. Now that we're gotten a little heavier, we're going to go even more. So when we last connected, you and I served on a panel together and you shared your lack of trust or belief in that surge of support and allyship that showed up after George Floyd's death. I'd love to hear. And you were so generous on that panel. You're like, I actually ask me, teach me or ask me. And I, I don't mind teaching you like that's and not everyone has been open to that, but you were like, Hey, ask me, don't, don't dodge around this. So what does an ally look like to you that is not performative? You know, so it's interesting that we're having this conversation now after everything that's happened with the election and that is still happening with the election. And I bring that up because there are some people who are ready to face some some uncomfortable conversations and there are some people who are still in denial that these uncomfortable conversations are going to happen but realistically with a black woman an indian woman a south asian woman a woman of color in office as the vice president we're going to have these conversations <laughs> they're going to come up <laughs> And they're going to be very in your face. They're going to come up. So it's kind of like the universe is like, oh, so you didn't want to have these conversations. You didn't want to talk about performative allyship. Oh, we're going to, now we're going to talk about it. <laughs> we're going to have to talk about it. 
I think that these conversations are going to come up more and more and people are going to have to get to the root of why they feel like they have to put on a big show instead of doing the actual work. What's the difference to you? Putting on a big show is instant gratification and it's a mm. band-aid for the for the problem, but it doesn't get to the root of the problem. It doesn't actually fix the problem. And I, this is, oh my goodness, this has come up recently. Women's organizations that will say, hey, we're, we're here to support women of color. We're here to support our sisters. And they'll make these grand gestures, but I'm like, are, but are you making the little everyday gestures as well because you don't have to do this big grand thing to get to women of color to get to black women to get to other bipocs you encounter us every day you can just have a one-on-one conversation (laughs) so i think it's going to we're gonna have to shed some some skin and continue to push and get to the root of why we don't want to have these one-on-ones. I guess it feels safer to do the big grand gestures and to do the social media posts, but it makes us feel vulnerable, I guess, to have the one-on-one conversations. But the one-on-one actually has the biggest impact. We need that. And um, listen, I think the one-on-one has the biggest impact on the person desiring to be the ally. On everyone. On everyone. Because the person who wants to be the ally actually has a genuine face and a voice and a human being to put with this big cause that they say that they've been fighting for or that they support. And the person that you say you want to help is like, now I actually have a point person. Now I actually have someone that I can hold accountable for all the things that they say that they want to do to help me and my people. So accountability is an important part of doing the work. Mm -hmm. Yes. Accountability is a very big part. What does accountability look like and feel like to you in this, in the, in the, in the realm of allyship? Oh, it's not pretty. Accountability is not pretty. Accountability is going to be, it is going to be some finger pointing. That wonderful meme with the two housewives screaming and pointing and then the cat responding. That's, I'm the cat responding. (laughs) It's not pretty. But eventually it's, it's going to make things so much better. I read this article this morning that was talking about Joe Biden said this in his campaign about fighting for the soul of of America. And it was something that when Mitt Romney ran for president in 2012, he also said something very similar and then scaled it back. And Mm -hmm. this, this article was very interesting because it said there are actually, it's not just one soul of this country. There are at least two or multiple and we're at odds with each other we have to find a balance. It's okay that we're, that we have different views, but we have to be able to find a balance and be able to relate to each other one-on-one. Growing up in South Carolina, this is one of my most awkward favorite stories, but my stepdad loves boiled peanuts. And so before a football game, he would always have boiled peanuts, but he only wanted to get them from one specific place. He wouldn't get them from wherever. He was like, no, go to my guy. So one night he sends me to his guy and it's in this, this area in my hometown called the Valley, which I guess the Valley anywhere isn't ever somewhere, you know, people celebrate or want to necessarily be, but so But keep in mind, I'm from South Carolina, so it's very rural. Oh, gosh. I pulled up to this place, and there's literally a Confederate flag on top of, on the roof of the house. And there's this guy sitting on the front porch, and he looks like a 
he looks like, forgive me for saying this, he looks like a redneck Santa Claus. And like plaid shirt, overalls, big belly, white beard. He's got a gun. And I pull up and I get out of the car. And I'm like, I'm here to pick up some peanuts for, and I say my my stepdad's name. And his demeanor just completely changed. He was like, oh, yeah, yeah, come in. And, and I'm like, oh, it's safe for me now. <laughs> but I walk in and there's still Confederate flags everywhere and there's taxidermy. And I'm just like, this is so weird. At any moment, I could, ah, I don't. But because I said who I was there to pick up the peanuts for, I was deemed safe. And now that I'm older, I'm like, okay, this man clearly knew that my stepdad is a black man, that he's also, at the time, he was president of the NAACP in our hometown. This man, this man flying a Confederate flag, completely knew that. However, despite their differences, they were able to meet each other on common ground as human beings who just want boiled peanuts. Wow. The common humanity of boiled peanuts in rural South Carolina. Yes. (laughs) You know, but that story, it goes back to what you're saying about the one-on-one relationships and the importance of allyship is making sure that we are connecting one-on-one with people who are maybe outside of our lived experience, our comfort zone, not as a token, but as a practice, as a deepening, and then upping our capacity for discomfort in those conversations. And to know that our actions and beliefs may be challenged, but we have to hold on to know that our worthiness isn't on the table, but we may have a lot of unlearning and healing to do. And that is nuanced mm-hmm. nuanced work yes because the fact that we think that in order for for us to gain more freedoms we have to take away somebody's someone else's freedom that's that's a lack mindset there's abundance that's just out there for everyone so i don't have to take away something that you have in order for me to gain more that's just not that's realistically not how this works Right. But again, we're living in a world where they think the pie is shrinking. Mm -hmm. So, wow. Thank you for sharing that that story. And thank you for this conversation. This time flew by, Nakia. (laughs) Where where can people find you if they want to connect with you and learn more about you and your work? Yes. So you can find me on Instagram at Nakia Phoenix. I am working on redoing my website. I'm also working on detaching from social media a little bit more to be able to live in the real world, be more present in the real world. You can also find my other platform, blackgirlbeautiful.com on Instagram as well, where I celebrate women of African descent. And yes, if you if you happen to see me in these streets, you know, a little smile, head nod, wave, you know, I will wave back. It's just nice to be able to acknowledge our humanity more often than not. Nakia, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for radiating your beauty, but also calling us up and how we show up and encouraging us to use our voices, especially from a place of love and empathy. So grateful for your leadership and to know you a little bit better. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I love this quote by Naomi Wolf from her seminal book, The Beauty Myth. She who wins calls herself beautiful and challenges the world to truly see her. This is the work of a leader owning their activism, challenging the status quo of the world's definition of beauty by trying to change the lens of the world's view instead of asking the individual to change for the world. Nakia reminds us when we're fueled by love, integrity, the right community, and vision that feels aligned, we can challenge the status quo to change instead of being complicit with the status quo. It may seem easier to adapt ourselves or ask others to adapt, but easy has a cost. Caring about business, bottom line, and the greater good sure makes things more complicated, 
but I know you're not bothered by complicated things, especially when it is an issue you care deeply about. You are a leader who cares beyond just the bottom line and is inspired by the values of serving the greater good. You understand your activism has the power to activate change and disrupt the status quo. And you're here for it all, even on the hard days. So let's do this. What gets in the way of you leading from a space of confidence and knowing you're enough? What are some of the messages that distract you from believing in and trusting yourself? And where do you need to take a stand for change instead of staying silent or going with the flow? If you desire the best from yourself and those you lead, you have a collective responsibility to do the work to increase your capacity for the pushback that inevitably comes. It is essential work for leaders who are deeply committed to increasing their own capacity to lead themselves well so they can lead others well. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a scrappy hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then unburdened leader coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your unburdened leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, along with free unburdened leader resources and ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.